Hey, hey, hey. It's Nikayla, and this is Selfie Life, where we talk about complex science principles by relating them to I Love Lucy episodes and bunny ears. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen to the early embryogenesis episode. It was the episode right before this one. Also, for those of you questioning my three haze, I heard someone say it in the library when I was writing this episode. I thought I would try it on. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Anyway, I am Nikayla and welcome to The Selfie Life. This subject is a two-parter because it was getting a little longer than I wanted. And I want to keep these episodes around 30-ish minutes. So I decided to chop the embryogenesis review in half. But first, housekeeping. I have set up a Patreon page. If you are enjoying the show and want to share the love, you can head over to patreon.com. With Patreon, you can pay a small amount of money each month to help me cover production costs. It will help me pay for hosting and pay my amazing editors that help me get these episodes out every week. You can support the podcast for as little as 25 cents an episode, which is only a dollar a month. Or if you're just you're just a broke student and you really need that money for ramen, I get it. I've been there. Share the love by telling your friends about this podcast and rating or reviewing. You can follow me on Instagram. I post review questions on my stories just about every day. And you can also check out the website at selfielife.com, where you can find the script notes and all the GIFs and memes I reference and the YouTube links I talk about in the show, all that good stuff. Now let's just let's just jump into it. Okay, so last episode we talked about fertilization and implantation and cleavage and morulas and blastocysts and trophoblasts and the inner cell mass and how the inner cell mass gives rise to the bilamator disc which ultimately gives rise to the germ layers. I know, we covered a lot. We're awesome. And this is where we're going to pick up in this episode. Let's see, let's pick up right after implantation. So at this point, right after implantation, the embryo is just heading into gastrulation at this point, which we've already talked about a little in the previous episode, but we're going to go into more detail here. Gastrulation is the formation of the three germ layers. It also happens about the third week of development. So it happens pretty early. We haven't gone over the germ layers a lot. We mentioned them briefly in the last episode, but maybe you remember them from school. Even better if you remember them from the previous episode. What are the three layers of the trilaminar disc called? Ectoderm, mesoderm, and endoderm. If you got those, give yourself a high five. Follow-up question. What do these three layers develop from? The inner cell mass. So the inner cell mass forms the bilaminar disc, which is made up of the epiblast and hypoblast. The epiblast layer will become the trilaminar disc, which is made up of the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. Let's put those in the right order. Ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm. Let's talk about how these three layers form. 
we will start by taking another look at the bilaminar disc just to remind us where we're at. The bilaminar disc has formed and it is the two pancakes, remember? The top layer is the epiblast and the bottom layer is the hypoblast. Cells of the epiblast migrate inward, downward, and then differentiate. Picture the migration of the epiblast cells like two waterfalls that are facing each other. These waterfalls are long and on the epiblast layer. These waterfalls are happening where the primitive streak formed. Remember, the primitive streak is a groove streak along the caudal midline of the bilaminar disc. In the last episode, we talked about it being that one line of syrup on our pancakes. From either side of the waterfall, this continuous passage begins down the center of the top pancake. So like symmetrical waterfalls facing each other. So if you were standing in the middle of a canyon and water was coming down in from both sides, creating the symmetrical waterfalls, this is what the epiblast layer does. The spot where you are standing would be on top of the hypoblast layer. So these moving cells of the epiblast are what are macroscopically called the primitive streak. So the epiblast cells that just went down the waterfall, that is the primitive groove, the cells that fall down the waterfall go down and start mixing with the layer that is the hypoblast layer. The hypoblast layer starts deteriorating and the new differentiated epiblast layer have now completely replaced the hypoblast. So now we have a new bottom layer of cells called the endoderm. The endoderm is derived from the epiblast. The epiblast cells don't stop there. They continue down the waterfall and start making a middle layer of cells in between the newly formed endoderm layer and that top epiblast layer. This middle layer of cells, which has been derived from the epiblast, but positions itself below the epiblast and above the endoderm, is now called the mesoderm. So we now have the endoderm and the mesoderm. Both are derived from the epiblast. So now the remaining part of the epiblast is like, hey, yo, I've changed. I need a new name too. And this remaining portion we now call the ectoderm. So the epiblast layer is actually super talented. It has now created the endoderm, the mesoderm, and ectoderm, along with the notochord. In the last episode, we mentioned that the notochord starts in the middle of the middle. So the notochord is a knot of cells that forms in the middle of the mesoderm. But these three layers, the endo, meso, and ectoderm, are also known as the germ layers. Neurulation is the process where the neural tube forms. Later, it will form the brain, the spinal cord, the meninges. We enter the neurulation phase with the three primary germ layers, and this is where they start differentiating further to become different types of tissues. Another flashback question, more to your school days, because we haven't covered this yet. Do you remember what the germ layers give rise to in developed bodies? Okay, let's review it really quick. What does the ectoderm give rise to? Remember, the ectoderm is the attractoderm. So it gives rise to the things we might think of as attractive about a person. Their big doctor brain, skin, hair, the lens of the eye. The tricky one to remember is the adrenal medulla. How about the mesoderm? What does the mesoderm develop into? The mesoderm 
is the mesoderm. So the means of how you get around. Think skeletal muscle, circulatory system, most of the excretory systems. <laughs> the gonads are also from the mesoderm layer because you're getting around. Wink, wink. <laughs> as well as the adrenal cortex. So because the adrenals are composed from two different germ layers, let's make sure we pay attention to that. The adrenal medulla is from the ectoderm, and the adrenal cortex is from the mesoderm. I actually think this makes a lot of sense, if we think about it and break it down. So the adrenal glands are these small glands that basically are just sitting on top of our kidneys, but they produce hormones. When I think who the big player in hormone production is, I'm thinking the brain, which we know is from the ectoderm layer. The adrenal medulla is the inside of the adrenal glands, and the adrenal cortex is on the outside. Remember we talked about cortex meaning bark or shell in Latin? So the cortex is the outside of the adrenal gland, and the hormones are getting made on the inside, in the medulla. So the adrenal medulla is from the ectoderm. The outside of these glands is from the mesoderm layer. Mesoderm, like the layer that makes the kidneys that these things are hanging out on top of. Does that, does that help a little bit? I find if I get a better picture of it, I don't have to memorize everything because I understand it. Okay, the last germ layer is the endoderm. The endoderm forms the pancreas, the thyroid, bladder, parts of the liver, the epithelial linings of the digestive and respiratory tract. Humans are really just complicated origami. So the short version of neurulation is that the folding of the three germ layers, specifically the ectoderm, results in the formation of the neural tube. Different parts break off of the ectoderm, and these parts are called neural crest cells. And these are the parts that will travel throughout the forming body to make things like the adrenal medulla, the autonomic ganglia, and other parts of your nervous system that aren't housed in the spinal cord. Obviously, it's more complicated than origami, and in med school, you'll need to know all the details. But honestly, of all the things, as long as you understand that neurulation is the folding of the germ layers that starts the differentiating and results in the formation of the neural tube, which ultimately forms the brain and spinal cord, I think we'll be okay on neurulation. Neurulation, human origami. Also, I don't think this will be on the test, but remember how folic acid deficiency can result in spina bifida? That's one reason why a lot of female multivitamins contain folic acid. And if you are trying to get pregnant, you should definitely be taking this vitamin because we just saw how early neurulation is actually occurring. While we are speaking about things that can harm the fetus, let's chat about teratogens. Teratogens are things that interfere with development and cause defects or even death. However, not every teratogen has the same effect. Teratogens range from alcohol to environmental chemicals, bacteria, viruses, drugs. So really anything that can hurt development can be called a teratogen. I just looked up teratogen in my little root word book, which I love and use all the time. It's called Dictionary of Root Words and Combining Forms by Donald J. Borer. I don't know if I'm saying that right. 
It was recommended to me when I took anatomy. And now it has a perma place in my heart. Also, that's not an ad. I just talk about root words a lot. And this is where I'm looking a lot of them up. I will actually put a link to it in the script notes if you guys want to check it out. Anyway, Torado means monster in Greek. And gen means to bear or produce. Which is really kind of terrible. But now you should really never forget what a teratogen is or does. Who came, who came up with that? That's that's kind of terrible. Terrible is a combination of terrible and horrible. Teratogens are terrible. While we are talking about the few things that can be harmful to a growing embryo than fetus, let's talk about torches. T-O-R-C-H-E-S. This is an acronym for the things that can cross the placenta and cause harm to baby. Torches stands for TO is Toxoplasma gondi, R rubella, C cytomegalovirus, HG is herpes and HIV, S is syphilis. Toxoplasma gondi is actually a parasite that you can get from cats, so don't change the kitty litter if you're pregnant. Another mode of infection is eating undercooked meat and also from mother to child, like we're talking about. Rubella is a virus, and it's actually preventable because there is a vaccine. Cytomegalovirus is a virus, like it says. And actually, most people that are infected are asymptomatic. This virus usually only causes problems in pregnancy or those with weakened immune systems. Herpes is a common sexually transmitted infection. The greatest risk of transmission to the fetus and the newborn occurs in case of initial maternal infection contracted in the second half of the pregnancy, but doctors can treat with antivirals and in some cases, C-sections are actually recommended. HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. And I actually, I googled HIV and passing it on to baby and read an article and it said, if you work with your doctors and follow your guidelines, 99% of HIV infected women will not pass HIV to their babies. I had no idea it was 99% preventable from passing it on to your child if you worked with your doctor. And of course, if you have access to the drugs. S is for syphilis. Syphilis is caused by a spirochete bacteria, Treponema pallidum, which is a spirochete, which means it's a corkscrew. Syphilis is treatable with the right drugs, but left untreated can cause problems like neurosyphilis. Now let's talk a little bit about stem cells. <laughs> I know, awkward segue, but we were going over neurulation and then we took a sidetrack into bad things for fetus. Let's circle back around and finish up the neurulation talk with some details about stem cells, which are really freaking cool. Like how? How do they know what they are supposed to do and like do this thing, not this other thing? There are chemical messengers and only certain genes are turned on, but still, science is pure magic and I freaking love it. So let's talk about stem cells. When talking about stem cells, you might hear terms such as specification and determination. And in the past, I have heard these explained in a slightly confusing manner, but it's really not confusing at all. Specification is reversible. Determination is not reversible. 
this is not the best metaphor, but it's what popped into my head immediately. So we're going with it. Dating and marriage. <laughs> we're going to pretend like divorce isn't even a thing for this metaphor. A lot of people like to date around before they get married, right? So you can have somebody, then you can break up. It's not super crazy commitment. This is specification because it is still a reversible reaction. So in terms of stem cells, it would be considered specification. The cell is reversibly designated as a specific cell type. Now, if things are working out really well, you might move on to marriage. Marriage is a more serious commitment. Some might even say irreversible. In stem cell talk, this is determination. Before determination, the cell can become any cell type. After determination, the cell is in it for life. Now, how a cell knows to become a certain type of cell is what I think is a really cool area of research. Determination is, <laughs> forgive me, determined by a lot of different things. Like how much cytoplasm is in the cell, RNA distribution. But one of my favorites is when the neighbor tells it what to do. So the neighbor cell that tells the cell what to become secretes morphogens. Like it's the queen bee telling everyone else what to do by messenger. These messages are telling the person what to morph into. Morphogens. Basically, the perfect human example of this is Regina George. On Wednesdays, we were pink. Quite frequently, morphogens work by a gradient. So the closer a cell is to the morphogen point of release, the higher exposure it will be subjected to. Some of the prep books name some common morphogens, but I'm not going to lie here. The only one <laughs> that ever really sticks in my head and that I remember is Sonic Hedgehog, SHH, which is just the best nerdy name for anything in science. Okay, question for you. Hypothetically, let's say you do research and you discover a little protein like a morphogen. What would you name it? I would probably definitely name it after some sort of small creature. Like, I don't know. I might just call it creature. Or I could call it Dobie. <laughs> I'm ridiculous. I actually, I text my brother and I asked him what he would name one. And he said Carl Malone, or he would just call it Mailman. He's obviously a lifelong jazz fan. We could call it Navi from Zelda. Ooh, I'll call one Avo Toast. <laughs> oh, you know, because I'm a millennial. And because I could. You guys, if anybody has some really great names, will you send them over to my Instagram? It's at this selfie life. I really want to see them. Show me your show me your nerdy creativity. <laughs> show me your nerdy creativity. <laughs> I keep on wanting to say creatine, but I'm trying to say creativity. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's get back on track. So we have specification, determination, and then we have differentiation. If we are sticking with the marriage analogy, it's going to be a stretch. This is like a maturing in the relationship. So stem cell differentiation may include changing the structure and biochemistry. So let's say you get into medical school, because you're all going to get in, 
and your person is going to move across the country with you. It's a change in, you know, biochemistry, right? Okay, so we had specification, determination, and differentiation. So stem cells are essentially cells that can differentiate into lots of different types of cells. There are two main types of cells that are talked about, embryonic stem cells and adult stem cells, a.k.a. somatic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are pluripotent stem cells that are taken from the inner cell mass. Pop quiz. What stage of embryology are there inner cell mass cells? Remember, the inner cell mass was that group of cells that huddled together in the blastocyst that later differentiated into the germ layers. Refresher that pluripotent basically means that these cells can form any cell in the body. And there are different levels of potency. So let's actually, let's run over those. Let's go down the line from greatest level of potency to least amount of potency. So totipotent means that the cells can differentiate into any cell type. So the morula cells will be totipotent because these cells can differentiate into any cell type, either the placenta or the fetus. The next is pluripotent. Pluripotent stem cells are master stem cells that can potentially create any stem cell within the human body. So the inner cell mass cells are pluripotent. The next level of potency is multipotent. Multipotent stem cells can differentiate into multiple types of cells within the particular group. This is what most somatic stem cells are. A common example of multipotent stem cells is hematopoietic stem cells, which are capable of making red blood cells and platelets and all of the white blood cells. A lot of differentiation depends on cells' neighbors, just like in determination. So determination can be influenced by morphogens. Differentiation can be determined or influenced by inducers. So let's say someone wants you to do something, so they induce you with a pizza. Or if someone is trying to get you to do something, pizza, pancakes. I'm in the mood for pancakes. That person trying to get you to do something would be the inducer. The person responding to the bribe is the responder. And the responder is considered competent if they are able to respond to the inducing agent. This stuff is really important and it can be confusing. So let's review that one more time. Here we go. Specification, determination, and differentiation. Determination can be influenced by morphogens. After determination, cells can differentiate. Cells that have not yet differentiated or can give rise to other cells are stem cells, and these are grouped by their potency. Cell potency refers to the varying ability of a stem cell to differentiate into different specialized cell types. The hierarchy of potency is TPM. Totipotent, pluripotent, multipotent. I've never heard a great way to remember this. TPM. I don't know. Toilet paper man? (laughs) I don't know. But their level of potency is also contained in their name. 
totally, plural, and multi. Determination and differentiation can also be influenced by what surrounds them, by morphogens and inducers. If a cell is open to inducing, it is called competent. I have a Khan Academy video in my link, which is a great visual. If you need to be walked through it visually, check out that video. So inducers help to differentiate. This can happen through autocrine, paracrine, and juxtacrine signals. Do you guys remember what all these crin words mean? Okay, autocrine is when the signal acts on the same cell. So the cell sends a signal to itself. Like when you leave yourself a post-it on the door so you won't forget to grab your lunch as you're running out the door. Or do you guys ever send yourself texts? I do that too. Paracrine. Paracrine is the signal for the general area. So you send out a message to the people in the general area you're in. Juxtacrine. This is for the person right next to you. So if you pass a note to the person sitting right next to you. I mean, no one really passes notes. If you text the person sitting right next to you and everybody does that. One thing that I think is really cool is that induction is not always a one-way pathway. Cells can induce each other to become certain cell types. When this happens, it's called reciprocal development. Kaplan had a cool example in their book. The lens of the eye and the optic cup induce each other, which is called reciprocal development. Oh my gosh, you guys, we, we're getting close. I promise you. Okay. I know that embryogenesis is very dense. And the last kind of big item we need to cover is fetal circulation. And we need to know the fetal circulation specifically because fetal circulation works quite a bit differently than adult circulation because the fetus isn't using its lungs to take in the oxygen. It's getting its oxygen from mom through the placenta. Remember that mom and the fetus's blood is not mixing. We talked about the beginning formation of placenta in the last episode. If you need a quick review, check that out. But in the meantime, let's do a pop quiz to get a little refresher. Okay, question. Can you remember what extra embryonic structure will form the baby's portion of the placenta? The chorion. Follow-up. What cells give rise to the chorion? You said trophoblast, didn't you? You're brilliant. Okay, last question. What extra embryonic membrane surrounds the fetus? The amniotic sac, which is full of amniotic fluid. When people say their water broke, it is the amniotic sac and the fluid that they are talking about. So the fetus is surrounded by this fluid, which acts as an extra protective layer surrounding the fetus. This also means that the fetus isn't able to use its lungs to get oxygen. So how is the fetus getting oxygen? From the placenta, from the mom. But how does this work as far as circulation? You probably remember that your arteries carry oxygenated blood away from your heart and lungs, and veins carry deoxygenated blood back to your heart and lungs. In the fetus, stuff's different. The fetus, the arteries still carry blood away from the heart, but the blood is not completely oxygenated 
because the baby is getting its oxygen from the placenta. So the fetus is getting oxygen from the fetal vein. Okay, oxygenation happens through diffusion. The little oxygen molecules that are on mom's red blood cells, they jump ship and hitch a ride on the baby's red blood cells. This switching from mom's RBCs to the fetus's RBCs is done with the help of fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen. The waste products from fetus, such as CO2, are diffused the opposite way from the fetus to mom. Just to be clear again here, the blood does not mix. Diffusion is happening across the placenta. Let's follow the oxygenated blood from the placenta and let's do it magic school bus style. So we are on a little red blood cell and we just picked up some oxygen in the placenta and we are now catching the umbilical vein and traveling through the umbilical cord, which is an excellent time for a pop quiz as we make this journey. What two extra embryonic structures form the umbilical cord? The yolk sac and the atlantoas. From the umbilical cord, we're heading towards the liver, where some of the oxygenated blood is going to go to the liver to feed it its oxygen, but we go through a shunt called the ductus venosus into a very large vessel called the inferior vena cava. Cava? Cava? I don't know if there's a correct way. When we enter the vena cava, we bump into some deoxygenated blood returning from delivering blood to the kidneys and the legs, and the blood is getting all mixed together. We enter into the right atrium of the heart. Remember that blood doesn't need to go to the lungs for oxygen, so the blood doesn't need to go to the right ventricle to be pumped into the lungs. To get around this, our little red blood cell goes through a shunt called the foramen ovale. The foramen ovale is a shortcut from the right atrium to the left atrium. It's like a secret door that only people in the know get to use. And by people in the know, I mean the fetuses. So this foramen ovale works because of pressure differentials. In the fetus, the right side of the heart has higher pressure. This will change after birth. And the pressure causes a healthy heart to slam this trap door shut. And it's kind of like impossible to open it against the pressure after birth. Okay, so from the left atrium, we go into the left ventricle, and we are pumped out through the aorta and dispersed throughout the body. But we notice that some of the blood that was in the right atrium actually went down into the right ventricle. And when the heart pumps, we know that it will send that blood to the lungs. But remember, it doesn't need to go there to get oxygenated. So the blood that was in the pulmonary arteries can get back on track by going through the ductus arteriosus into the aorta. So ductus arteriosus is from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. Think of it as you take a wrong turn and your GPS has you take a side street to get back on track. There is a lot of pressure in the lungs right now, which helps keep the blood from flowing there. They are, they're basically just squeezed shut. Okay, so now we've dropped off our oxygen 
and we need to make our way to pick up some more and we need to get rid of the CO2 we picked up. So we make our way to the internal iliac arteries and take a right and hop on to the umbilical artery expressway and we're headed right towards the placenta. Another thing to note is that the placenta isn't resistant at all. The placenta wants the blood to come there and to get more oxygen. Overall, important things to remember about fetal circulation. Fetal circulation is not as clean as our circulation. Oxygenated and deoxygenated blood gets mixed together. Fetal circulation works because of different pressures. So the right atrium has high pressure, the lungs have high pressure, and the placenta has low pressure. So for pressures in this scenario, you can actually like substitute in the word resistant. So the lungs are highly resistant to blood flow, and the placenta isn't resistant at all to blood flow. Another reason fetal circulation works is because of the adaptations. Let's run through those really quick. So we have the umbilical vein, so blood from the placenta to the liver and ductus venosus. So ductus venosus allows blood to go from the vein to the inferior vena cava. Foramen ovale takes blood from the right atrium to the left atrium, mostly bypassing the right ventricle. Ductus arteriosus is for the blood that does go into the right ventricle. It allows blood to flow from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. And the internal iliac artery connects to the umbilical artery, which goes to the placenta, which has low resistance. If you're still a little foggy, check out my notes. I have some further explanation as well as some video links. Okay. Last thing. Last, last, last thing, I promise. Humans are pregnant for 38.5 weeks, and then events are further separated out into trimesters, which are approximately 13 weeks. I don't think there's a ton we need to know about vaginal birth. Vaginal birth does happen because of the hormone oxytocin, which I think is probably the most important part. So oxytocin creates uterine smooth wall contractions. Okay, that's it. We are done with this episode. Thanks for hanging in there. I feel like the last three episodes, the female reproduction and embryogenesis episodes, are some of the heaviest in the biology section of the MCAT. So pat yourself on the back. We made it. Study hard, friends.